Uh, you can be finding your place in John chapter number two. John chapter number two. We're not necessarily staying with one book. Liz asked me, she said, are you preaching through a book right now? I said, well, I'm preaching through about four of them. And we're just kind of in the Gospels going through the life of Christ. And uh, I've entitled our series Refocus. And so our desire here is to get our eyes on Jesus, to refocus. And so we're, we're looking in uh, through the life of Christ. And our focus is uh, trying to be not so much on his people as it is on him and how he relates to them and how he interacts with them and things. And so we want to kind of shine that spotlight on him, if you will, because uh, for a while we've looked at uh, the supporting cast, we've looked at different characters, and even I think in our Christian life, we tend to focus on all of the, the people surrounding Jesus, and sometimes they uh, take the spotlight off of Jesus a little bit. So I want to put that spotlight on Jesus and and show who he is and how he cares for us and what he's like and what he does and such. So that's what we've been doing. And last week we returned back to this after uh, the Christmas season. We kind of had a Christmas theme going for a while. And last week we looked uh, at the story of the marriage at Cana and where Jesus turned the water into wine and he rescued the reputation of a newlywed couple. We said that for them to uh, run out of refreshments at their wedding and uh, things to not be able to provide for their guests there would have ruined their reputation. It would have uh, been a, a great social faux pas, if you will. And so with that, uh, they didn't even realize that it was going to happen. They didn't see it coming. But someone there did, and Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they have no wine. They're running out of refreshments. Do something about this. And Jesus performs his first miracle. And we said the fact that he performed his first miracle at a wedding on something that seemed to be non-essential, not all that important, shows us a good bit about Jesus. For one thing, we see that even the little things are important to him. But another thing is that he's not uh, hes not the killjoy that religion makes him out to be. His first, uh, first miracle is there at a wedding, at a celebration, to prevent the, the celebration from going awry. Okay? And so that was his first miracle. And I said, we, we often think, you know, Jesus raising the dead and him bringing the, the, making the lame to walk again and giving sight to the blind. But his first miracle was at a wedding, kind of putting God's stamp of approval on marriage. Uh, he was the one who performed the first marriage back in uh, the Garden of Eden, right? And so he, uh, he showed the importance of marriage. He showed the importance of people and of uh, celebration, of joy, and of taking even the littlest things to God and casting all your cares upon him. And we also saw that the, the miracle that was done uh, affected people that didn't even realize the prayer, prayer had been prayed. And that just, that really stuck with me because I wonder how many, uh, how many people have prayed for me and I didn't even realize they were doing it. How many things in my life are the results of other people's prayers? And I also wonder how much God has used my prayers in the life of other people. And we're never going to know that, not this side of heaven at least, but it shows us how important prayer is. And so uh, we keep praying. We pray for the little things. We pray for the big things. And we pray in faith knowing that he cares, that he hears, and that he is able and that he will uh, work all things together for our good. And so today we're going to be uh, continuing here. It wasn't long after uh, that wedding at Cana of Galilee, that it was time for Jesus and his disciples and the rest of the Jews 
to make a trip to Jerusalem for one of three feasts that the Jews were required to keep by the law. Uh, as God had given them the law, he says, three times a year will all the males of Israel present themselves at the temple. And this wasn't necessarily one of those things when we say it was required by law. It's like, oh man, I have to. This was a time whenever everyone was coming together for a feast and a celebration. This would have been a festival type atmosphere. This would have been something that people would have or should have enjoyed getting to be a part of. Uh, and so anyway, it was time for Jesus and his disciples to go into Jerusalem for the Passover. And this would have been something that he would have uh, kept all throughout his life because it was required by the law. Jesus kept the law. He was a Jew, right? And uh, it wasn't something that was new to him. And so he wouldn't have been surprised by what he found whenever he came to Jerusalem. It wasn't like, oh, this is my first time to see the temple and realize what's going on. Uh, he had been there many times. And it was here, though, that he had already began his ministry. He was uh, making his way toward the cross. And so he was going to be revealing to people who he was and what he was about. And everyone was probably expecting whenever he went to Jerusalem, if he was claiming to be the Messiah, if he was working miracles and things, for him to associate himself with a religious establishment, right? But that's definitely not what we find whenever we get into this passage. So John chapter number 2, and we're going to begin down in verse number 13. It says, And the Jews' Passover was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves, and the changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen, and poured out the changers' money, and overthrew the tables, and said unto them that sold doves, Take these things hence, and make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Then answered the Jews, and said unto him, What sign shewest thou unto us, seeing that thou doest these things? Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty and six years was this temple in building, and wilt thou rear it up in three days? But he spake of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said unto, unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man. For he knew what was in them, in, in man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we come to you once again today in prayer, Lord, just asking you, Lord, for your help and for your guidance, Lord. Lord, I, I know my, my weaknesses and my inabilities, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would just work in my heart and my mind. Help me, Lord, to say the things that are needful and helpful today. And Lord, be with each of your people here, Lord, and speak to their hearts and work in their lives, Lord, and do exactly with that which is needed. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, just work. If anyone here doesn't know you as their Savior, I pray today would be the day that they trust upon you, Lord. I pray that you'd be with those who aren't here, Lord, for whatever reason, work and different things, keeping them away. Lord, I pray, Lord, just work in their lives and just help this church that we can grow, that we can flourish, and that we can be a witness in this place that you've put us in. And Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as we look at this passage here, we find Jesus going down in Jerusalem. He goes into the temple and he cleanses it for the first time. 
And really what we find here is uh, a lot of times people uh, have the idea that Jesus was some kind of weak, effeminate guy, that uh, all of these different things, but uh, he isn't that way in this picture. And so whenever he came in, it says that he fashioned a whip out of small cords and that he drove all the animals out of the temple and uh, drove out the money changers and those that were selling the animals. And he cleansed the temple and he says that, uh, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. That's pretty bold of him, right? Uh, there's a, a common picture, a little meme that goes around. It says, whenever I think, what would Jesus do? I'm reminded that uh, making a whip and driving people away is not out of the question. You ever see that? <laughs> of course, that's kind of taking it and making light of it. It's trying to take this out of context a little bit about what's going on. It's not that Jesus is giving us permission for us to lash out and beat people up. But anyway, I just thought that was a little bit of a funny uh, story relating to this. But coming to the context of this passage that we're reading here, there would have been multitudes who were descending upon Jerusalem. They would have been coming from all areas of the region around there uh, to keep this Passover feast. And the temple was going to be the center of all the festivities. Everybody was converging on the temple grounds and everybody was coming for worship, for celebration, for this feast, for a focus that should have been on God. Okay, that's what they, what was going on or what should have been going on. And they would have ended up staying in town after this for the following week, for the week, uh, or for the uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed the Passover. And since the time of Solomon, we know that the temple was a central element of Scripture and of Jewish life. Everything kind of revolved around the temple. And before that, you had the tabernacle, which was basically a mobile temple. It could be taken down and put up because it was built while they were in the wilderness, while they were moving around, okay? And so you had the Old Testament focusing on this structure, on this building uh, that is a little bit curious, a little bit strange to us today, but it doesn't take too much uh, looking or very much reading in the Word of God to know that the temple had a significance. It had an importance. It was very prominent, but what was its purpose? What was the temple all about? And that's the first thing I want to look at today because we find all the way back in Exodus that God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle and that would be what the temple would later replace under Solomon. And it was supposed to represent God's presence among the people of Israel. We find that throughout the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that God would come down in the pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud. His presence would be on the tabernacle, right? Whenever Moses would go to meet with God, he would meet with him at the tabernacle. And it was a symbol of God's presence amongst his people. And so it showed them that he wasn't some distant and impersonal being or a force. Uh, as many of the gods around them coming out of Egypt, all of the gods were far off, distant, uh, untouchable, unrelatable, uh, supposed to be appeased and not provoked, right? That was their idea of deity. But this God that they served, the true and living God, was one that would come down and meet amongst them at this tabernacle. Furthermore, the temple and the, the tabernacle was meant to be a place of sacrifice and of service. And whenever God gave the law to Moses, he knew that the people were going to sin, that they wouldn't keep it, right? People have the idea that whenever God gave the law to, to Moses, whenever he gave out the Ten Commandments, that there was an expectation for the Jews 
to keep this. As if God gave it to them and said, here is your way into heaven. If you keep this law, you keep these commands, then you're going to be okay with me, and then you're going to be able to come to heaven. That was never God's purpose. Because interwoven into that law, he says, these are my commandments, but when you break them, when you break them, I'm making provision for you in a way for you to receive forgiveness, for you to receive atonement, for you to come back and be right with me. Something that's going to take away that sin that separates you from me. I'm making a provision for you. Okay, And so if you think that uh, you're to keep the law, if you're to keep the commandments, if you're a good enough person that you're going to get to heaven, God never intended it to be that. And so he says, I'm going to make a means, I'm going through the through these sacrifices that are going to be offered up at the tabernacle and at the temple, through those I'm going to make a means of reconciliation, a way of you coming back to me. I'm going to be amongst you, and when sin separates you, from me, I'm opening up a door. I'm making a way to where you can come back to me. And that's what the tabernacle was representing. He gave a priesthood to them, and the priest was designed to be a intermediator, an intermediary, uh, someone to go between the sinful man and the holy God. They were to be the one that was to instruct them out of the law, instruct them in the ways of God, was to guide them, to lead them, and was to point them toward the Lord. That was what was supposed to be going on with the priesthood and with the temple. And so all of those animal sacrifices of the Old Testament communicated a great truth to the Jews. We can go all the way back to the very beginning, before there was a temple, before there was a tabernacle. And whenever Adam and Eve sinned the first time, God told them, in the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. But we know they didn't die. Instead, God slew an animal. He clothed them with the skins thereof. And he set forth a principle that by the shedding of blood comes the remission of sin. That he would offer, or that he would allow for a substitute to be offered in place of the guilty, all the way back in the, the book of Genesis. And so that comes forward and to the Passover that we were talking about in this passage. And the Passover began whenever the children of Israel came out of Egypt. The last plague that God put upon the Egyptian people was that the firstborn throughout every household in all of the land of Egypt would die in one night. But he made an allowance, and he says, even though the firstborn are marked for death, if you will take out a lamb without spot, without blemish, slay it, and put the blood upon the doorpost of your house, then that animal will die in the place of that firstborn, and I will pass over that household, and they will not suffer loss. Okay? And so he gave them the commandment to keep this as a celebration, as a memorial, year by year on the same day every year, they were to recognize how God had allowed for the salvation of their firstborn through the death of this substitute all the way back in Egypt. It was to teach the people about God's relationship with them, about their sin, but that God made provision, that he offered up a substitute, he offered a sacrifice, he offered a way for them not to suffer the penalty of death. And that goes also, not just with the Passover, but all of the law, there was a prescription for sacrifices to be offered up, animals to be slain, to be burned upon the altar, to be given in place of the guilty so that their sins were covered and their relationship with God was restored. Because here's the thing, God is holy. 
He is without sin. He is without spot. And he is also just. And so our sin separates us from him, but his love draws us to him. Our sin brings that separation, but because he loves us, he has made a way to reunite us with himself. And this is what this temple was supposed to represent to the Jewish people. And so as the people were approaching this temple, this is the kind of things that should have been in their minds. It would have been a beautiful but a bloody picture for all of them, but it showed God's love for them. It showed his design. It showed the way that he was working amongst humanity, amongst mankind. It was teaching them a great lesson. It was preparing them for Jesus. They knew that there was not any way whatsoever that these animals were able to pay the price for a sinful man. No matter what Peter or anyone else says, animals are not nearly as valuable as human beings. Okay? And they knew that, but they were trusting that God was going to send the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute. And so every animal that was offered up, every sacrifice that was made, was looking forward to the day that God would make available the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute. And so he was making provision for them to escape judgment and for them to be reconciled unto himself. And so the temple, it was to be a symbol of God's presence with his people. It was to be a symbol of his love. It was supposed to be a place of reconciliation where they could rest and they could have peace knowing their sins were forgiven. Because as they came to the temple, they would bring their offering and they would say, I don't know how this lamb pays for my sin. I don't know why God accepts it, but he says in his word, if I offer this lamb, then I shall go free. That my sins will be forgotten. They will be atoned for another year if I bring this lamb. And so they brought the lamb and they said, okay, I'm okay with God. I don't have to fear his wrath, his judgment. I don't have to pay the price for my sin. I don't understand it. But by faith, I'm accepting it. And so they could rest and have peace and knowing that God was with them, that he loved them, and that he made a way for them to be cleansed. But in this passage that we read, that, excuse me, that we read today, that is not what Jesus found whenever he entered into Jerusalem. We found instead that uh, even though uh, there was a purpose in the temple, we found that uh, they had profaned the temple. They profaned the temple. As he came in, uh, God had intended the temple to be a place of blessing, but man turned it into a curse. Isn't it strange how God creates good things and man has a knack for making bad purposes for it? It seems like we can pervert the purpose of anything. God can give something pure and innocent and good, and we can take it and make something bad out of it. It's crazy how that works. But this is what happened with the temple. The priest took God's law that was meant to draw people to God the law was meant to show them that they were sinners, that they weren't able to live righteous and holy, and that they needed God's provision to cover their sin. That's what the law said. It was a schoolmaster. It was to bring them to Christ. That's what its purpose was. But instead, the priests and those who were the religious leaders of the people took the law that was meant to bring them to God and built a wall between them and God. And that's what was going on in Jesus' day. And so the temple became a symbol of the people's failure. 
It became a symbol of a God that the religious leaders had made inaccessible. And so the temple to them would have represented an unreasonable God. It wouldn't have been really any different to the Jews of that day than any other pagan temple that existed. They seen an unholy and unrighteous God that was uh, oppressing, that was uh, impossible to please, that they were trying to tiptoe around and trying to appease because that is how the religious leaders had painted him out to be. It wasn't any different than Baal because with Baal, they were trying to offer up offerings to him to appease his anger so that he wouldn't fry him, right? That was, that was kind of the idea behind all these pagan temples. And so they had uh, perverted what God intended this temple to be. On top of all of that, the religious leaders and priests used their position to gain power and prosperity with the people. So let me just draw a picture here, if you, if you can follow me for a minute. As he was coming into Jerusalem, the temple would have been the focal point of the city. And whenever we look at the, this where it talks about the, the temple, we think about the temple proper, the actual building, right? But whenever it's referencing the temple, it's talking about the entire temple grounds. And so you had the temple, which was made of the holy place and the holy of holies. That's where the ark was supposed to be, where the mercy seat was, where the blood of atonement was put up on the mercy seat once a year by the priest, right? But outside of that, you had the court of the Jews, and that was where the men could come into, the male Jews that were clean. They could come in that close to God. Then they had the court of the women. The women couldn't come as far as the men could. And then they had the court of the Gentiles that was put even further away from God. But God had made provision for them to have a place for Gentiles to come and learn about him and to worship him, right? But the Jews, we know, didn't like the Gentiles, saw themselves as superior to the Gentiles. And so what did they do to the court of the Gentiles? They turned it into a marketplace. Okay? And so as you're approaching the temple, the court of the Gentiles was now, uh, was now occupied by basically a stock market. It says that there were sheep and there were uh, oxen and there were doves, but also it says that there were changers of money, a place for business transactions to occur. And these things were going on on the temple grounds. And so imagine you're coming to worship God. You're coming to a place that's supposed to be holy and separated unto him. And the first thing that you're confronted with is all of this business taking place and that it is highly unscrupulous business. They had found out that religious or that religion was a very profitable business. And so as the people were coming, many of them were coming from afar. This was almost sold as a convenience at first. Okay. So if you're coming from a long ways away, you're coming from the hill countries of Galilee, like Jesus would have been, you were supposed to be bringing your Passover lamb with you, but who wants to go on a road trip with a sheep? So for your convenience, whenever you get here, we will have a lamb available for you to purchase at an inflated price. Oh, you brought your sheep with you. Well, I'm sorry, but we found some imperfections with your sheep. It doesn't pass our test, but you're in luck. We have one over here that is temple certified for a price. And so you come with your sheep. That sheep no longer is suitable. You don't want to tote the sheep around for a week. You end up giving it away to somebody or eating it for supper. I don't know. 
and buying their sheep for double of what it was supposed to be worth. And then you come and you're bringing your tithes and you're bringing an offering. There was a, a temple tax that was supposed to be paid by the, the males every year for the upkeep of the temple and things. But you're coming from a different territory and you don't have the proper uh, currency. Because, of course, it was Roman uh, control at that time and they only accepted Jewish currency, which was only available at the temple. How convenient. And so whether you came from uh, Greece or you came from Macedonia and Greece or if you come from up in Antioch or you come from uh, Hill Country of Gallup, wherever you came from, you're bringing your money, but it is pagan money. It has the impression of uh, other rulers or maybe, maybe even deity from other countries, and we can't accept that at the temple. You need the proper currency. And so we will. we have these nice fellows over here. They will exchange your money out for the proper currency at an inflated rate. You ever exchange money at the airport? Is that where you're going to get the best exchange rate? <clears throat> Probably not. And so anyway, they would exchange their money out at the temple for the proper money so that they could give their offerings. And so they have came on a long journey. They've waited through the crowds. They got here only to be cheated repeatedly by the people who were supposed to represent God. Isn't that a mess? And so they have turned something that is supposed to be special and holy, supposed to be joyful, and supposed to be something that draws them closer to God, and instead it is something that is pushing them away from God. By the time they're leaving the temple grounds, they feel as if they've been cheated, they've been abused, that they've been mistreated, all these different things, and they are mad. And so as Jesus comes in and he sees all of these things going on, Jesus has a love and a desire for men. God had this desire and for uh, all this time, he's been making ways of reconciling people to himself. He's been wanting people to come and draw an eye unto him. He's been seeking after them as the good shepherd seeking after the lost sheep. This is what he's been doing. And he sees the people claiming to represent him abusing the people and driving them away from himself. And so what does Jesus do? He sets down, he weaves a whip out of small cords, and he proceeds to drive them out of there and telling them that this was not the place, it was not the time for their mess. He overturns the tables, he puts the money out on the ground and shows them what he thinks of their gods of gold Put it in the dust where it belongs. This is a holy place. This is a, is a place of worship. This is a place where people are supposed to be approaching unto God, where they can get right with God, where they can enjoy the presence of God. And instead, you have made it a money-making scheme. You have made it uh, such a horrible experience for everybody involved. And so he says, get out of here. And essentially what he is doing is he is taking away the things that are standing between the people and God. This is what he's doing. And this is one of his first public acts. Yes, privately he turned the water into wine, but he comes into Jerusalem, and the way people are introduced unto him is he says, I'm going to take away the things that stand between God and man. Does that not describe his entire work that he did? And that's what he did on the cross, is taking away what stood between God and man. And so as we come here to this and we see how man had so come between man and God. 
Jesus is making this right. And so he goes about purifying the temple, cleansing it, getting rid of these things, overthrowing the tables and, and running these people out. And then, though it doesn't say in this passage, we find that at the end of his ministry, right before he's crucified, he does this a second time. And after he runs everyone out, he sets down in the temple and he begins to teach from the word of God and people come around him. I have a feeling this happened at this passage as well. At the end of what we looked at, there in verse uh, 23, it says, uh, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. It doesn't record the miracles. It doesn't say what all he did. I believe he was teaching and he was demonstrating the power and the love of God to these people. Okay? And you can imagine all of these religious leaders kind of licking their wounds, kind of upset about all of this, saying, can you believe this guy? And they're grouping together, they're whispering, they're talking, and they are angry, but they don't know what to think because he just came out of nowhere and threw them out. And so in verse number 18, they come to him, and it says, then, it, then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign showest thou unto us? seeing thou doest these things. Essentially, the, the Jewish leaders are asking him, who do you think you are? Who gives you the right? Who gives you the authority to do these things? We're the ones in charge. Do you not know who we are? We are the ones who represent God. We are the ones who tell the people what to do. We are the ones who control what goes on in this place. Who do you think you are to come in here and overturn our little marketplace? And so Jesus tells them about the provision that he was going to make for a temple. He knew that this temple that he had just cleansed, this one amongst all the people here, that it wasn't going to stay that way. I already said that he's going to have to do this a second time, right? The temple's not going to stay cleansed. Men are going to continue to meddle, and the temple was never intended to be permanent. As I said already, it was meant to teach the people things. It was to point them to Jesus. It was to show them God. And so Jesus responds with his credentials here. And he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jewish leaders, being carnals they were, though they claimed to be religious, they took it literally. They missed the metaphor completely. And they thought that he was saying, if you will destroy the temple, the building that they were at, that he would raise it up in three days. And so incredulously, they look at Jesus and they say, 46 years was this temple in building, and you're going to build it yourself in three days? The Bible takes all the guesswork out of it, and it says he didn't speak of the actual temple. He was speaking of the temple of his body. And so what he was telling them, remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the religious leaders. He says, you're going to destroy this temple, the temple of Jesus' body. He pointed out who the guilty parties were. He didn't say the Romans are going to do it or some other. He says, you, the religious leaders, you're going to tear this temple down, but I'm going to raise it in three days. This isn't the end of his ministry. This is the beginning. The crucifixion wasn't an accident. Jesus didn't take things too far. That wasn't what was going on. Jesus came to offer up himself, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so he says, 
You're going to destroy this temple, and I'm going to raise it in three days. So how was Jesus' body a temple? How was it that he was providing himself as a new temple? We find that the temple was a place where God meets with man, right? And they said that a virgin shall conceive, and they will call that which is conceived of her, they'll call that holy child Emmanuel, which being interpreted as God with us. And it was in the body of Christ. That is where God met with mankind. That is where he built the bridge between himself, a holy God, and sinful men. And so Jesus' body was a temple because it is where God met with men. It was also a temple because it is where the sacrifice was made to bring reconciliation between God and man. Because you would bring your sacrifices to the temple to be restored unto God. And Jesus Christ was the sacrifice. He was that lamb that was slain. He was the altar. He was the lamb. And he was the sacrifice to bring us back to God. And so we see how he is the temple. We find also that the temple housed the priests that were to be the go-betweens, the mediators between God and man that were going to bridge that gap. And we find that Jesus is our high priest. It says we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we yet without sin. That Jesus is our high priest. He is the one that mediates between us and God. He is the one that reconciles us to God. He is the priesthood. He is the altar. He is the sacrifice. He is the meeting place. He is the temple. And so as we look at all of this here, there was a purpose of the temple, a profaning of the temple, a purifying of the temple, and a providing of a better temple. But how does all of that apply to you and me? You say, well, that was good history lesson. That was a good story. But how does it apply to you and me? We find that God loves us, and he desires a relationship with us, and that he has made a provision through Jesus Christ to make all of that possible just like that temple that Jesus was approaching in our passage today. But we also find that there are plenty of religions and plenty of different thoughts and theories and teachings and different things out there that have profaned the temple. They have profaned the way that we approach unto God. There are many people who stand between us and many processes and religions that stand between sinful men and a holy God. They make the process difficult. They make it uh, undoable, and they turn many people away from God. And so for us who are saved in here today, we need to make sure that we are familiar with the God of the Bible. We don't get sold on the profaning of the temple that man is selling today, that we don't get turned aside from the truth of God's word and fall into some of this error and this falsehood. Because here's the thing, many of the people of that day believed all of the false teachers because they didn't know any better, but we are without excuse. God has given us his word. He has revealed himself to us. Don't be going after these falsehoods and these lies that are being misrepresented. Don't allow someone to build a wall between you and God after Jesus tore down the middle wall of partition. But we also have another way to apply this to us because we find that the Bible tells us that our body is a temple. Y'all realize that? Know you not that your body is a temple? The Holy Ghost abides within us. If you are born again, if you are a saved child of God, it says that the 
the Holy Ghost takes up residence in our hearts, that he is living with us, that he is the seal of our salvation. And so we become the temple of God. But I'll tell you, we can profane the temple. We can put things there that don't belong. And I'm not talking about uh, eating McDonald's. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we can allow things into our life that come between us and God. And whenever that happens, we need to purify the temple. The emphasis of all of this is make sure that there is nothing coming between you and God. Be it internal or external, be it the ways of man or the desires of your flesh, God has made provision for you to draw nigh unto him. Don't allow anything to come between you and him. Don't get your eyes off of him. Don't lose your focus on him and make sure that he is where he belongs, that he has that central place in your life. But the last thing that I want to bring out today is for anyone who doesn't know Christ as your Savior. All the way through this today, we have seen how God desires us, how he loves us, and though we sin, though we fall short, though we mess up, we are not able to come to him by our own merits. And he knows that. And so he has made a way. People will complicate it. People will make it a lot harder than it's supposed to be. But it's as simple as this. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He paid the penalty because you can't do it. The Bible says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. It says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We can't work hard enough. We can't do enough, make enough sacrifices, put forth enough offerings, attend enough services, go through enough rituals. and serve. We can't do enough because we've sinned. But God has made provision. The Bible says that in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We find that it says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 8, verses, uh, excuse me, not 8, in Ephesians anyway, that for by grace are you saved, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by what we do, it's by what he did. It's not by the works that we do, it's by the work that he did. It is a gift, not something to be earned. And so he offers it up freely to whosoever will. So whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So what does it mean to be saved? How does a person go about it? Knowing that they're a sinner, there's nothing they can do about it, but that Jesus died for them and is willing to save them if they will simply put their faith in him and call upon him and ask him to forgive their sins and save their soul. And by faith, they are born again. They become a child of God. Their sins are forgiven. They are reconciled to God. And they have that relationship with him. There's nothing that stands between them and God any longer. It's as simple as that. It is received by faith. All of these things that we've looked at here today Show us who God is. Show us how much he has done to bring us to himself. And there are plenty of things that's going to try to keep us away from him. Don't let anything keep you away from God. Let's go to the room for him. Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. Lord, we just ask you, Lord, that you would take this uh, thought from your word, this example of how difficult people try to make it to come to you, Lord, and help us just throw all of those things aside, Lord, 
and seek you first and foremost. Help us to see how you love us and how you've provided a way. And Lord, if there's anyone in here today, Lord, that uh, maybe they're saved, Lord, but they've allowed things to enter into their life. They've allowed their temple to be profaned, Lord. I pray, Lord, that today they would make a decision, Lord, that they would uh, cast those things aside. They would come to you and confess their sins and have them forgiven. And if there's one here today who don't know you as their Savior, they don't know that heaven's going to be their home, I pray that they would get that settled today, that they would call upon you and they would trust you for salvation. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you've made provision. We thank you, Lord, that honestly, I thank you that I don't have to go to the temple. I don't have to make sacrifices. I don't have to jump through hoops and go through all these religious rituals, Lord. But I can come to you on the merit of you, upon the merit of what you have done, not of what I've done. I thank you so much for all that you do, Lord. We do love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, and amen.